praise the Jews. And this is Matthew 24, where Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation. He told the Jews, when you see the abomination of desolation, uh, you better head for the hills. You better get out of town. You better seek refuge in the rocks and dens and caves. He said in Matthew 24, you better pray that you're not giving, um, 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 and you don't have an infant with you to slow you down. He said, don't even go back to get your coat. You better get out of town because it's going to be a holocaust on the Jews as never seen before. It's going to be a holocaust on the Jews. I'm convinced personally that would make the Nazi holocaust look like a picnic. And that's why he called it the time of Jacob's trouble. It's going to be a time of intense tribulation for the Jewish people. As Satan unleashes all of his hatred, all of his animosity on the Jewish people, God's people, you see, by covenant, he, he causes the sacrifices to cease. In other words, he bans and outlaws the Jewish religion. He goes into that same temple that they have rebuilt for their God, the true and living God. According to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, he goes into the temple of God, he sits on the throne of God, he proclaims himself as God, demands to be worshipped as God, and check this out, Revelation 13 tells us that he will be worshipped all over the world under penalty of death, and halfway through the tribulation, this is when all that happens. He breaks the treaty with the Jews, and that is when it's what's called the Great Tribulation now begins to ensue. You see, the reality is one day soon, Christ is going to rapture His church. And God's prophetic clock that has stopped is going to begin again. The question is this, are you ready? He's coming quickly. And He's not calling ahead when He does. This is the age of preparation. It's a time of determination. It's a time to define your destination. Will it be the tribulation? I pray not. And if you know Jesus, it will not be. You're going to be ready for what you see in eternity. God bless you. Daniel chapter 9. It's amazing prophecy, isn't it? So Daniel prophesied with precision the exact day that Jesus would enter Jerusalem with his first coming, his triumphal entry. Let me ask you, do you think maybe if God prophesied with such precision the exact day of Christ's first coming, do you think maybe he'll fulfill that last seven years with the same precision? Do you see why I'm really, I'm really just confused how any of us honestly could get to an amillennial view of eschatology, meaning it's just all spiritual. The church has become the spiritual Israel. In other words, replacement theology. Uh, which means all these prophecies now are just spiritual or symbolic. They're not literal. So there's no literal Antichrist figure. In fact, a lot of people believe, you know, when Paul spoke of, um, you know, that son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians 2, and later on John would call him the beast of Revelation 13. Well, that was just Nero. I mean, that was, uh, you know, the, the wicked evil emperors of their day. Uh, here's the problem, though. God fulfills 483 years of this prophecy, literally. How much sense would it make for God to have these seven remaining years and just fulfill it allegorically, symbolically? Do you, do you see why I really have an issue with that? I think we just need to take God literally, where God means to be taken literally. And where God does speak symbolically, I hope by now you're learning the Bible's self-interpreting. We never have to just arbitrarily, of our own ideas and opinions, make up what the symbols mean. Because those symbols all mean something. And when you let Scripture self-interpret itself, all of a sudden you begin to realize exactly what God is teaching. Even behind the symbolism, there is a literal meaning. Does that make sense? And so uh, let's, uh, let's talk about whatever you want to tonight. Questions, thoughts, comments, Daniel 9, something we've talked about maybe earlier in our study together. Anybody want to share, talk? Yeah, questions? Yeah. Come on. So, so speak into the mic, because we put this online. I want to be able to hear the questions, too. It crosses my mind. I have some Jewish friends. How they interpret that of the Old Testament? Do they just pass over it? So most Jewish people you meet today are secular Jews. The problem is they're not believing Jews. And so consequently, you know more about their Old Testament scripture than they do. And so most Jews, uh, what is the Jewish Bible? It's our Old Testament. Uh, most Jews that are coming back to Israel today, they're coming back in unbelief. 
uh, they're coming back as secular, not religious Jews. And so consequently, uh, when you talk to a Jew and want to share the gospel, forget about the New Testament. They don't acknowledge it. They don't recognize it. The best way to share the gospel with the Jews is show them the Old Testament prophecies that their Jewish scripture tells that anointed one, a promised one, will one day come. And uh, try to illustrate how Jesus had to be that promised one because he alone in history fulfilled all the prophecies, every single one. But the problem is when we're talking to Jews and Jewish friends specifically, most of the time they're secular Jews. They're not actually believing Jews. That's the condition of Israel. If you go there today, guys, uh, the big political divide in Israel today is uh, land in exchange for peace. And so the religious Jews are the minority of Jews in Israel today. Well, the religious Jews know about the Abrahamic covenant. So the religious Jews are saying, no, don't give away our land. This is our land. God gave us this land. They're a minority. Most Jews in Israel today don't believe anything about their religious history. They're very proud of their nationalistic history. They're very proud of their ethnicity of being a Jew But they have no sense of their history, no sense of their uh, religious covenant that God made with Abraham and their seed. So consequently, uh, they're quick to give away land for peace. That's the big political divide there. Well, here, uh, most Jews today are far removed from uh, the Jewish scriptures. They don't know what it says. Uh, All they've ever been taught is that Jesus was an imposter, whoever he is, He's still dead. He didn't rise from the dead. That was just a lie propagated by his followers. It's just a myth. But the best thing you can do with your Jewish friends is show them specifically the Jewish prophecies made about the Messiah. This is their Messiah. And then illustrate specifically how Jesus is the only one that could have fulfilled that and did. Yeah. Uh, Pastor, after the rapture of the church, you stated that America would no longer be an economic power, but none of us are taking our money with us on the way to heaven. Of course, we're not taking our debt either. So, how do you... Spin, spin, spin. Jesus is coming. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, think about this for just a moment. Um, What happens after 9-11? What happened to the stock market? What happened to the U.S. economy? Uh, we're, we're just now starting to emerge out of a great recession. Times are so good in America. We are so far removed from the rest of the world and how they live financially and economically uh, that we have it pretty good even when we're in a recession. Just imagine instantly, conservatively, 25 million Americans instantly disappearing, gone. Can you imagine the pandemonium, the panic? I mean, we're talking an implosion I mean, we're talking, you know, a lot of people worry, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people already in panic and the preppers and, well, you need to have at least so much water on hand. You need to have so much food on hand. And I've got 15,000 rounds of nine millimeter ready, man. I'm ready. (laughs) Here's the deal, guys. I, I say, hey, be ready. Go ahead and prep a little bit. Do whatever makes you feel secure. But the reality is, personally, when you look at Scripture and the lens of Scripture, the implication is though... So the U.S. is in decline, and there's no way around it. We are in decline as a nation. We do not have the military power even remotely we did a decade ago. You guys paying attention to this? Our military is not ready for war. I mean, half of our warplanes can even fly, all right? We are a superpower in decline. We are what Great Britain was, no offense to James, 100 years ago. Okay, steady. <laughs> Hey, there was a time that the sun never set on the English Empire, right? Well, guess what? Kingdoms rise and fall. And we're living at a time where our kingdom is falling, not rising. Military, we're, militarily, we're in decline. Economically, we're in decline. The U.S. dollar does not mean on the world trade system what it used to. Uh, we have recently been degraded, downgraded in terms of U.S. credit. Okay, So here's my point. There's no doubt the U.S. is in decline economically, militarily, politically. 
but we will remain relatively strong right up to the rapture. And I'll tell you why. Because what you see in the tribulation, Ezekiel 38, Battle of Gog and Magog, you see a nation of Israel that's at peace in a time of prosperity. That's when they're attacked. Here's the point. If the U.S. isn't strong, Israel isn't either. The implication, guys, will be the U.S. will stay strong up to the rapture, personally, I think. But here's the deal. 25 million Americans instantly disappear. Can you imagine the infrastructure meltdown, the panic that will ensue? And here's the reality. It's already a global economy. If it, if it belches in New York, it hiccups in Tokyo. And so what happens is a domino effect. The U.S. implodes, 25 million disappear. Now, remember, a lot of parts of the world, the rapture won't even be known until the next day when somebody flips on the news. In parts of the world where there are no Christians to speak of, it'll be barely noticeable here in the West, Western Hemisphere, there's still enough of us that if we suddenly disappeared, you better believe somebody's going to notice and notice right away. So consequently, what happens? You have an economic collapse. The domino effect begins. If the U.S. dollar collapsed instantly, guess what? If the U.S. economy collapses today, every other world economy follows it by tomorrow. So now you have a geopolitical cataclysm. And all of a sudden, the world is without a superpower and a peacemaker. Now, what is the Arab, the Arab enemies of Israel already saying? Listen, it's no secret. Hamas, the Taliban, Hezbollah, they have all vowed the destruction of Israel. The only reason they don't march on Israel today is because they know the U.S. military from the West is coming. And the moment they think the U.S. military from the West either won't come or can't come, they're marching on Israel. That's the battle of Gog and Magog. What do we know then? Russian-Arab coalition. Like I said, match made in hell. The Russians need their oil. Those with the oil need the Russian military. They come together to do what they wish they could have done a long time ago, destroy Israel, push them in the Mediterranean. God spares Israel miraculously, intervenes, it says, with a... Basically, a nuclear blast from heaven, all right? God rains down fire and brimstone on this military coalition, neutralizes the Russian military temporarily, neutralizes the Arab military temporarily. The U.S. is no longer a world player. Out of that leadership vacuum, a new world leader emerges to bring peace in the Middle East, broker the seven-year peace treaty between Israel and their enemies, Israel feel like we have no choice but to sign this covenant because the U.S. is no longer our protector. The Arabs will feel like they have no choice but to sign this covenant because they've been neutralized militarily. So all of a sudden they come to the table, they sign the seven-year peace treaty, and that seven-year covenant, Daniel 9.27, it begins the seven-year countdown to Armageddon. And uh, I don't know why I keep doing this, but I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> I hope I answered it. <laughs> short questions, no short answers. Okay, guys, sorry. I really wish I could speak like an Aussie. Um, <laughs> I was just wanting to say, um, I've been visiting a, uh, uh, a Jewish synagogue out on 95th. Um, uh, it's a Messianic Jews. It's a little place. I've, I've heard there's one here in, in uh, town, too. I think there is somewhere. Yeah, but mm -hmm. they, it was, it's an amazing service they uh, they praise the lord and for an hour before they have any i just i don't want to let you know there's there's jews out there who mm -hmm. believe in jesus they call him yeshua yeah and and they're wonderful wonderful people yeah and just want to say it's great yeah <laughs> but but think how few there are i mean there are messianic jews and it's a beautiful thing to see God's people, by covenant, the Jews, embrace their Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. You better believe it. It's awesome. And who better should get it except one of the Jews? I mean, they understand all the offerings of the Jews, the five Hebrew offerings, all the feasts, all of that spoke of a Messiah, all of that pictured Jesus and what he did on the cross. And you know their feasts. I mean, the feasts... It was a study of the plan of God for the ages. Jesus fulfilled the first four feasts in his first coming. He will fulfill the last three feasts in his second coming. Guess what the next book's going to be after we get done with the book of Revelation? Guess what book we're going to study in the well? The book of Leviticus. <laughs> oh, some of you going, oh, yeah, and some of you going, oh, no. 
Guys, I'm going to tell you, you're down on what you're not up on. The book of Leviticus is amazing. Jesus is on every single page as we study the five offerings of the Jews, as we study the seven feasts of the ancient Hebrews. It's going to be an absolutely remarkable study. We're going to start that a year from now. But I simply say that, David, because you're right. It's an awesome thing. I love talking with Messianic Jews. Guess what? For a Jew in the first century, as it is even today, when they embrace Jesus as the Messiah in their mind, they don't stop being a Jew to become a Christian. Judaism, the natural progression of Judaism, is that you naturally become a Christian to be a follower of the Jewish Messiah. And there's a lot that you can learn from Jews. Because, I mean, being a Jew... You ought to understand things we Gentiles don't fully do. Yeah, it's good. Somebody else, somebody, yep, right up here in the middle. Uh, thank you, James. Right here. If we all die, uh, how do we get raptured? Do we die and get raptured, or do we just disappear? Okay, great question. And what about yeah. babies? But what about babies? Yeah. Okay, good, good, good question. So, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. Uh, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be forevermore with the Lord. So those that have already died before the rapture, those that died in Christ, their soul goes to heaven, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, their body goes in the grave. And at the rapture of the church, the graves of all those who have died in Christ is open. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that which was uh, planted in the earth as a mortal. It rises in immortality. The body that went in corruptible rises incorruptible. So at that point, the dead in Christ rise and they get the glorified, resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their soul is reunited with their body, but it's a different body than the one that they got buried with. Now, what about those that are alive? Well, there's going to be a generation of believers on the earth at some point that never feel the sting of death. All of a sudden, you're going to be like Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, who was one day walking with God, and then bam, you were not. God said, I took him. And it's the rapture of the church, where uh, suddenly, Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you're just changed. Uh, from mortal to immortality, from corruptible to incorruption. And uh, so, that's what's going to happen at the rapture. The answer is, there's a generation of Christians who will not all die. Some will be alive at the rapture of the church, and he'll be caught up in the clouds. Thank you, Martin. Somebody else? Anybody? Babies. babies. Thank you, babies. So, I love babies personally. You guys? That's all I got to say about it. So, here's the deal. The Bible doesn't say specifically what happens to babies? Uh, this is a question people often ask, well, what about babies that die? Where do they go? I mean, they, they, they can't trust Jesus. They weren't old enough to. Well, I think that there's enough implied in Scripture, though the Scripture never specifically says what happens to babies when they die or what happens to babies at the rapture. Uh, you know, where I come from in my tradition, we always talked about an age of accountability. Uh, where, you know, God covers that baby or that little one until some age of accountability where now they understand that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And before they can understand they're a sinner in need of a Savior, God just covers them by His grace and mercy. Here's the deal. There is no phrase in Scripture, age of accountability. But I believe it's implied. All right, First, uh, First Samuel chapter 12, David has a baby who dies. It's the baby that he fathers with Bathsheba. And the baby falls sick, and this is a part of God's punishment, God's consequences on David's sin. And this baby dies at seven days of age. The implication, on the eighth day, little Hebrew baby males were circumcised. God specifically takes this baby on the seventh day. This little baby had not been circumcised. But what does David say in his grief? He says, he shall not return to me, but I shall go to him. Okay, the implication is David's baby was in heaven, and one day David would go to him and see him in heaven. Now, that's really all we have in Scripture that says specifically what happens to babies. This I know, 
about God's character. Uh, God's character demands that he is just and merciful. I personally have a hard time harmonizing the character of God, even though there's not a lot in the Word of God that would say that some babies die and go to hell. Now, there are some that believe that, guys. Uh, The Westminster Confession, Reformed Theology, I'm talking about Calvinism, says elect babies go to heaven, non-elect babies go to hell. I'm just telling you, I don't believe that. And once again, I try not to be combative. I try not to be divisive. You heard me say it in the video. Uh, There are in-house debates theologically that we have to be willing to have openly in humility as a body, the body of Christ. Um, But I'm just telling you, I, I think, I think, that's horrific. And I don't believe God lets babies go to hell. Any more than he lets somebody who has a mental, you know, mental handicap. They don't have the mental capacity to fully understand their sin and their need for a Savior. Jesus said, allow the little children to what? Come unto me. You know what else he said? If anyone harms one of these little children, it's going to be better for them that a millstone was tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. Don't tell me babies go to hell. Because Jesus said, I'm going to tie a millstone around somebody and throw you into the sea. You touch one of these little ones. Hmm. How does God feel about babies now? Uh, I personally believe that extends to the rapture. Again, we can't say. Pure speculation. There's no book, chapter, and verse we can turn to to say this is what happens to babies at the rapture. Personally, I think that anyone alive at the time of the rapture that trusted in Christ and knew Christ and those that were not old enough, like a baby or a child, they also go in the rapture. But again, I'm telling you, I don't know. It's speculation. I'm just telling you I think it's the implication of Scripture. Jimmy, yeah, come on. Okay, sorry. Hang on just a minute. Another example, um, Solomon had two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Which one went north? I can't remember. Um, Jeroboam? Yeah. Well, he was a wicked king, and he had a son. And God loved that son so much that he caused a sickness to come upon the son, and the son died. He said because if he were to allow, allowed to grow up, he would be wicked like his father. So another example that God took a child home before he was accountable for his sins. It's hey, you know, you know, God often gets leveled with, you know, a lot of accusations, bad God, mean God. What kind of a God will let a child die? What kind of a God will let a baby die? You guys understand that from God's perspective in eternity, death is an act of mercy? I mean, think about it. We're not made for time. We're not made to live here forever. Who would want to? When God takes a little baby before we think he should, you know, from the scope of eternity, that could be seen as an act of mercy. I'm just saying, you bet. God can see things we can't see. He knows things we don't know. Sometimes we just have to trust God that he's, he's God and we're not, yeah? Okay, Jim. Uh, a while ago you mentioned that those that been in the graves. Well, today we have so many people that have been, been uh, uh, what do you call it? Been, cremated. Uh, cremated, and also all the men and women who have died out in the, where there's nothing there, and animals eat them and all that kind yeah. of stuff. People that were mutilated by whoever and whatever. Yeah. That, that could be classified as the grave, yeah. right? So people ask all the time, Pastor Phil, what about cremation? Uh, understand, historically pagans cremated their dead. Jews and Christians buried their dead. Why? Because Jews and Christians have always believed in what? The resurrection. That there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Pagans have burned their dead, cremated their dead historically. So here's the deal. While cremation is not part of Christian tradition, I do not believe it's sin. You know why? Because the same God that can put together the elements from the dust of the ground of a believer that's been dead for 1,500 years and give that that, that body and put it all back together again is the very same God that can take that ash of the cremated believer and put it back together again. I mean, this is God. He can do about anything, right? It's not too big for him. 
So uh, it doesn't matter when you died in Christ, and you're right. If you died 2,000 years ago, it's just dust. There's nothing there. There's no evidence your body was ever even there, but God knows. And from the dust of the ground or the ashes of what you once were, he's going to put that back together again, and they too will have a glorified, resurrected body then. Somebody else, yeah? Yes? I would like to go back to the Jews and the Messiah. And all the early Christians were Jews, right? Yes. <clears throat> when I've spoken with Jewish people that are not Messianic Jews, their problem, like the people that followed Jesus but fell away, is they were looking for Messiah that was going to set up a kingdom. Mm -hmm. So when you're speaking with them, you don't speak about the fact that, well, they think that Jesus wasn't Messiah because he died. They think he wasn't Messiah because he didn't establish his kingdom. And so when you talk about the prophecies that indicated Jesus was coming, being born in Bethlehem and all this, then you get to take it a step further and say, if all these prophecies were true in Jesus... They're going to be true in Jesus again when he comes as your Messiah. And I know I struggled for years with, why did he have to come two times? And finally one day I was reading and I went, oh, he came as the lamb to be in the temple with his blood in my place. And he was acknowledged as Messiah by people when he was on the earth. And he even said, yeah, I'm Messiah. But he came as the lamb. And the next time he's coming, he's coming as Messiah. Praise God. And when Indeed. you speak like that with Jews, whether they're secular yeah. or religious, then they're kind of going, huh. Yeah. They really have to think about yeah. Here's the deal, guys. Jesus didn't have to come twice, did he? See, a lot of people think, well, Jesus came the first time for the cross. He's coming back the second time for the crown. Yeah, well, have he not come to unto his own, and his own not received him, and instead they rejected him. Think about this. He would have gone to the cross, but as I said, he immediately then would have gone for the crown. He wouldn't have ascended back into heaven. There never would have been a church age that we're now living in, this parentheses in God's prophetic clock, and he would have immediately established his kingdom. But because the Jews rejected him, all right, he ascended back into heaven. God's clock stopped temporarily on the Jews, turns his attention to the Gentiles, salvation of the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles, and we know the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke 21, 24, super sign. Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Guys, since 1967, we're on borrowed time. Prophetically, there's nothing left to keep Jesus from coming tonight to rapture away his bride and turn his attention back again to the Jews to restore Israel. Not only nationally, they've already been restored nationally, miraculously, but one day they're going to be restored uh, uh, spiritually with the 144,000. Listen, we're just a lesson or two away from talking out of Revelation 7, the real Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm talking about the real ones, as opposed to the wannabes. And there are real Jehovah's Witnesses, 144,000 Jews that are going to miraculously receive their Messiah. They will go forth preaching the gospel to all nations, and then the end will come, according to what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Yes, Chef? This may be a, a stupid question, but... You, you're talking about the prophecy and 483 years and the seven years to come and, and the clock stop and the time of the Gentiles. Was that in a prophecy someplace where the Gentiles were going to become part of God's kingdom? So actually, if we go back and study, for example, um, the offerings of the Hebrews and the feasts of the Hebrews, you can see this was always a part of God's plan. When God saved the Jews and brought them out of Egyptian tyranny and sent them to a land that flowed with milk and honey, it was never simply to save the Jews. He always desired the Jews to become a lighthouse to the nations. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? In Genesis chapter 12, he told Abraham, in you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God promised to bless all nations, you and me, Gentile nations, through who? The Jewish Messiah. You see, the Jewish Messiah didn't just come for the Jews. God promised to save you and me, the Gentiles, through him too. So yes, it was always a part of God's plan, Chef, that the Gentiles would become part of God's family and not merely the Jews. Yeah, Nancy, and then come right up here, okay? Hi. Um, 
I find it exciting that I think I remember back in 67, um, Hal Lindsey um, was mentioning that in 70 AD, and this kind of goes with what she was saying over here, um, the lineage that's recorded from Abraham and also from uh, Adam and Eve and Luke, or you know, one's in Matthew and one's in Luke, and both, one genealogy is for Joseph and one genealogy is for Mary's line. And both of them come from the throne of the line of David and the throne of David and the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. And so when I was speaking with some Jews, I mentioned that because they don't always know about that Isaiah stuff that's yeah. the prophecies. Yeah. And they don't know those because now I find out from that last thing we they had, don't. they took it out of the Bible, out of their Torahs. Well, if you were here for Ed Croto's <laughs> class before we yeah. launched back into Revelation, he showed the video of obviously a Messianic Jew, a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem. He was witnessing to his fellow Jews. They were secular Jews. You remember what he did? He showed them Isaiah 53. He had them read Isaiah 53, which is one of the most amazing messianic prophecies uh, related to Jesus indeed, the messianic Messiah, the Jewish Christ, going to the cross and bearing our sins. And you know what? None of them had ever heard of Isaiah 53 because it had been forbid to be read in the Jewish synagogues. Yeah, so I also was talking with some Jewish people who acted like they didn't have a clue what I was talking about, all the prophecies fulfilled. And I said, well, look right here. Right here's the genealogy. Now, if you want to research it, you can't. But we've already proven that this is a correct genealogy. <laughs> That's what I told them. And um, <laughs> because they didn't know. But anyway. <laughs> you can tell them anything you want. They won't know the yeah. difference. <laughs> but anyway, so the next in line is Jesus as the king of the Jews, as the Messiah. He's the next in line because the temple was destroyed and all of the genealogies were destroyed. So if you wanted to go from there, that's how you do it. Yeah. That's what I told them. That's good. That's good work, Nancy. Nice job. Yep. Um, I had a question. You had mentioned earlier that the prophecies had been fulfilled as far as the rapture can happen at any moment, but I thought I had heard somewhere along the lines that like the rebuilding of the temple was a prophecy that had to happen first. And I know I've heard um, that the no, Jews. I don't think so. So look, at, you go to Daniel 9.27. What happens first? There's the signing of the seven-year peace covenant that allows the Jews to rebuild their temple. And so I don't think the implications anywhere that the Jewish temple has to be rebuilt before the rapture. As a matter of fact, I think if you look in Daniel 9.27, the order is clear. There's the signing of the peace covenant brokered by the little prince, little P., and that little prince, we know, is the Antichrist. So a part of the seven-year peace treaty, he allows the Jews to rebuild their temple. Then halfway through the week, three and a half years, he breaks the peace treaty. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that help? Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, guys, again, not trying to pick on our Reformed friends here, but think about this. If, uh, if, if all millennialism were true, that means it's all just spiritual. There is no rebuilt Jewish temple. There's no literal Antichrist figure. There's no literal seven-year tribulation. There's too many places in Scripture that find no fulfillment, no meaning. Second Thessalonians 2, who is this son of perdition that Paul speaks of? This man of sin who goes into the temple and proclaims himself to be God. Uh, what is this, you know, Daniel's 70th week is still hanging out there. What do we do with that? And I want you to see that, you know, the last thing the disciples were asking Jesus is he's going back up to the Mount of Olives. He's going to ascend back into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, what's the last thing they're asking him? Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom? See, right up to the very end, they still expected the Messiah to restore the kingdom. For a Jew, it was about a physical kingdom. They could not fathom the Messiah is going back to heaven and the kingdom is going to exist spiritually initially in the hearts of believers before it becomes something physical on the earth. And I want you to notice how Jesus answered them. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't say, oh, you guys misunderstood. It's a spiritual kingdom, not a literal kingdom. Uh-uh. 
He simply said this, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but my Father knows the time. You see, it's a literal kingdom, and one day soon, the king is going to return, and then will be the fulfillment of the Lord's prayer, finally, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't it exciting times to be alive? I mean, we're living right on the line. In the same way the book of Acts was a time of transition, God was transitioning from Israel to the church, from the age of the law to this new covenant of grace. I mean, he was moving from Jew to Gentile. It was a time of transition. Guys, we're living at another time of transition, right on the line as God is transitioning from the church age back to Israel, from this age of grace to the tribulation, and ultimately the millennial kingdom, a thousand years where the king reigns in peace and rest will one day come. Hey, so it's 547. Look, I'm going to stay till 6 and keep talking because I love hanging out with you talking about the Bible. But if you need to leave, we won't be offended. Feel free to get up and slip out. But uh, otherwise, if you want to stay, we'll keep going for another 13 minutes. Is it Susie? Okay, Susie. Give it up for Susie Blood. I love her last name, the Bloods. I mean, can you get any better than that? It's the blood of the lamb, Phil. Um, with the temple being rebuilt, won't the temple be built on the historic temple site? Okay, great and question. the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim yeah. mosque, is sitting there now. Yeah. So I don't think it has to So that's the right. big debate, guys, for the Jews to rebuild the temples. And again, if you ever go on the Holy Land tour with us, and I pray someday you will, because it is life-altering. David, is it true? I mean, it changes your faith. The things you now believe by faith, all of a sudden you've got sight. To stand on the Temple Mount, I mean, to be there where the temple once was, and now there's the Dome of the Rock, and you're on the Temple Mount. It's a 40-acre piece of real estate. You start to get the dimensions of what this thing was in Jesus' day with the outer court and the thousands of people that would have been there, then the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies. Well, here's the deal. The Dome of the Rock probably sits on or about the exact spot where the Holy of Holies once stood. Uh, when the Muslims conquered a people, it was always their trophy. They would put a shrine in the most holy site of that people they would conquer. And so the Dome of the Rock sits, it is believed, on or about the exact spot of where the Holy of Holies once stood. So the big debate is, how will the Jews ever get to rebuild their temple? All that's left of their temple is what you see on TV, if you've never been there, the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, where the Orthodox Jews are praying, and they're putting their prayers in the cracks of the wall. They're praying for two things. One, that the Jewish Messiah would come. Number two, that they would get to rebuild their temple. Guess what? Last time I was there, I walked up from the Wailing Wall, turned the corner, went up the steps, and I stopped flat where I was. There was this about six-foot golden menorah on display. They already are preparing the temple elements of worship to think this is the menorah, the Jewish menorah that will one day be in that very temple that the Antichrist is going to allow them to rebuild. They're already preparing. They're already doing DNA testing to prepare the Levites. Jews today don't know what tribe they're from. And they're already trying to define through DNA who are the Levites. The Levites are the priestly tribe because they know one day they're going to get to rebuild their temple and they want to be ready. And now the big debate is how? How will they rebuild it? Because for them to rebuild on the site where the temple once was would start a holy war. Like the Dome of the Rock is in the way. Now, I think there are two possible theories and that's all these are, theories. That's all anybody's got. As I've said before, the easiest way to interpret Bible prophecy is once it's happened. <laughs> this is Bible prophecy that hasn't happened. So we have to be careful, you know, how far we go with our theories. That's all this is, is a theory. I don't know. There's two possibilities. Number one, Battle of Gog and Magog. It's a real war with real bombs. And God really is going to rain down fire and brimstone on those Arab and Russian armies. Could it be maybe that in this war, Battle Gog and Magog, one of those bombs should hit the 
Dome of the Rock. Maybe, just maybe, God is raining down fire and brimstone on those Arab armies, and he misses one of the Arab tanks and hits the Holy of Holies. I don't know. But could it be that in that war, this third most holy side of Islam is destroyed, and as a part of brokering this peace treaty, he allows the Jews to rebuild their temple? Maybe. Now, the other possibility is this. It's just, I think, just as much of a possibility. In this age of ecumenicalism, what will the tribulation religion be? We're going to get to Revelation 17. It is a tribulation religion. It is a harlot church that has prostituted the truth of Christ with false religion and pagan religion. It's the coexist bumper sticker you see people riding around with. That's the tribulation church. Jesus, Buddha, Allah, it doesn't matter what you worship, who you worship. We are the world. We are the children. Let's just come together in peace and love. So could it be maybe, I think it's possible, you've got the Dome of the Rock here, and you've got the Holy of Holies and the Jewish Temple here. And the peace treaty will be that finally we're bringing peace in the Middle East and the three major world religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, we're coming together in peace and as a visible sign to the world of our peace, we're going to have the most holy side of Christianity and Judaism here and the third most holy side of Islam here. I think this is a real distinct possibility. But that's as good as any of us can do. Susie. I'm rebuilding the temple back in the day way back in the day when I was in college I had a religion professor who was saying oh yeah the Jews are already gathering materials to rebuild the temple and they can do it in just a very brief period of time the same temple that was took 40 years to build that was a few years ago Phil yeah not that long ago but it's true think about it um they they already have so you have the Temple Mount faithful these are Orthodox Jews that have organized you know, organizations in Israel as preparation. Uh, they've already got the cornerstone. It's already prepared. They've already made the elements of worship, the candelabra, the one I mentioned already. Uh, they're trying to breed a red heifer. I don't think they've had any luck with that yet, but they're trying. They're already doing the DNA testing, identifying who are the Jews in Israel, who are the tribe of Levi. So we have the priests because they can't worship uh, without the priests. And the Levites are the priests, not just anybody can be a priest, just ask Saul. Didn't go well for him. And so my point is, you're right. So what happens in this modern era, guys, they could rebuild their temple in a year. I mean, 12 months in this modern era of modern construction. And so all of a sudden, you see for the first time in 2,000 years, the Jews have completely reinstituted their temple worship, which they have not been able to do since 70 AD when Titus and the 10th Legion came, exactly as Jesus prophesied and tore down their temple. Imagine the hysteria. I mean, the, the, imagine what it was like. And I watched the documentary a few months ago on the 1967 war, the 50th anniversary, as the Jews rolled back in Jerusalem. And I'm telling you, it was so monumental for Jews to think, my goodness, the holy city, it is ours again. Just imagine, they now have a temple to worship in. And they're now worshiping according to the Levitical system that they have not been able to do for 2,000 years. But then, they no sooner get started, halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist breaks the peace treaty, turns on them, launches a holocaust on them. He and his armies roll into Jerusalem. He walks into the temple, proclaims himself to be God. What is it we've been talking about on Sunday mornings recently? What is it that Satan has always wanted since Isaiah 14 when he said, I will ascend into heaven? What has he always wanted? I will be like the Most High. And for just a short season in the tribulation, guess what happens? He gets what he's been warring for for the eons of time. He sits on the throne of God in the temple of God. He's worshiped as God. He has our earthly kingdom instead of God. And for a short season, he gets what he wants. But, but it won't last long. I mean, don't wait. It's not going to last long. I mean, there's a payday someday. Uh, in Revelation 19, guess what? 
payday is coming because the real king is on the way. And it says, out of his mouth proceeds a sharp sword that with it he shall smite the nations. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. Yeah, this is a pacifist Jesus, ain't it? No, Jesus is coming back. And what is a Christian way of saying? He's going to whip some butt. I don't know how else to say it. He's going to kick some. Uh, and uh, and the, first, the first one is the Antichrist. I mean, he's going to lay hold of him. He's going to say, hey, come here. I got something for you. <laughs> yeah. We got four minutes. Anybody else? There's a uh, farmer close to the uh, Jericho, the Dead Sea. It's a Washington Post article. You can read about it. But basically, they're, they're preparing the incense for the new temple. That's another thing also. It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. You bet. Susie? <laughs> you were talking about the secular Jews being willing to give up the land and the more orthodox Jews say, no, we don't want to give up the land because they don't really right now have control over what they were promised. And I ran into a young man a few years ago. I was out at Hobby Lobby or something. He had gorgeous hair pulled back in a ponytail, and I commented on his hair, and he had an accent. I said, where are you from? He was an artist traveling the U.S. He's from Israel. And he, of course, had been in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and I said, oh, I am so sorry that we Americans are not standing up for you guys like we need to be. And I said, don't give up any more land. He goes, oh, no. He said, we have to give them land. I said, what? And he said, yes, because right now, if we go after the terrorists, we're killing our own citizens, according to the world. He said, now, if we give them their own land and they're over there, then we can kill them. <laughs> I thought, good. That's a different way of looking at it. Now you're on your land. We're coming now. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, I saw a billboard in Israel last time I was there. Don't worry, America. Israel's behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Margie, you're the last one. They're supposed to restore the sacrificial lambs. And I worked with a um, Messianic Jew. He had been raised Catholic, but... Um, they still practice all the Jewish festivals, and I'm wondering how that works if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Is that the way it is in all of the their um, places of worship? Or? He's a Messianic Jew? Yes. So uh, a Messianic Jew would still practice all the feasts and the festivals, but they would not do it out of uh, you know the law. The law said you will do this. And it was how, in essence, you went to heaven. Now they would do it in a sense that we don't have to out of duty. We do this out of desire. We do this as a way of symbolizing what Jesus did. Uh, it's no different than some of us, unfortunately, in Christianity have been taught things like, well, you got to go be baptized to go to heaven. Well, you don't get baptized to go to heaven. You get baptized because you're going to heaven. You see, in other words, we have our symbols too. It's not to be a Christian, but rather because we are a Christian. So many Jews erroneously might keep the feasts and festivals to be a Jew, hopefully to earn God's favor. But Messianic Jews are going to keep those feasts and festivals not to earn God's favor, but because they have God's favor. Not to, uh, in some way, gain God's love, but because as a Christian, they know they have God's love. And so it's very symbolic. It's only symbolic to them. So here's the deal. They cannot sacrifice according to the sacrificial system without a temple. So while they're keeping the feast and the Passover, etc., in some fashion, they're not able to keep it. You don't go through any Jewish neighborhood today, even in the largest Jewish neighborhoods in America, like, say, New York or Chicago, during Passover, you will see no blood on any doorposts. Because they cannot sacrifice without a temple. That's the issue for them. So they're trying to keep what part of the law they can, but they can't keep the law perfectly. And that's why it's so grievous and egregious to them. That's why they're praying at the wailing wall. 
because they, according to their, in their mind's eye, they cannot worship God apart from the sacrificial system? You bet. Great question. Hey, you guys have a marvelous, marvelous week. Let me pray for you, okay? Jesus, thank you. Lord, for this amazing gathering on Sunday afternoons, I thank you for these people. Ask God your blessing on each one, that God, your blessing, God, would abound this week upon their life. Help us, Lord, to walk in your grace. Lord, help us to see the world through your eyes. Help us to understand that time is short. Lord, help us to be about your business in whatever way and wherever we go. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be filled with the Spirit of God, to live for the Son of God in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an awesome week, y'all, okay? God bless. Christ our King.